Hello, everybody, and welcome to the history of actor training in the British Drama School. This is just a little bonus edition um, of the podcast for anyone who's interested uh, in particularly perhaps Stanislavski's journey into the British Drama School. One part of the history of that journey is the publication of An Actor Prepares, the Elizabeth Hapgood translation. There, there are a couple of podcasts you can find um, where uh, I, I talk about that or, or read materials. But but one little curious thing is that John Gilgood was invited by the publishers of that first edition of An Actor Prepares to um to to comment there are a number of commentaries and john gilgood's was one and i think it's quite a, a useful document so just in case you don't happen to have an early edition of, of an actor prepares i thought it might be quite nice to to um to release this so this is john gilgood's thoughts on stanislavski at this interesting period 1936 1937 kind of just just pre-war um yeah i hope you enjoy it so Gilgood wrote, it was January 1937. It's a marvellous thing for the theatre of the whole world that Stanislavski should have taken the time to write what he calls his working textbook. Over and over, as I read An Actor Prepares, I came to passages which expressed exactly the things that every actor must have felt but been unable to express, must have known unconsciously but never quite realised. What he says, for example, about knowing or learning how to relax, how to control the body, is marvellous. There is no doubt, too, that his actual teaching of the approach to a part, of the preparation and the inner realisation of a role, his theory of imagination, of the give and take between actors, the study of the audience, how to hold them, whether to play with the fourth wall down or up, are all of inestimable value. Good actors who have not been trained in this school would have to, and no doubt would, find out these things for themselves. But training of this sort would shorten their apprenticeship and help them over the hard spots. I'm not sure whether an actor prepares is really an actor's book. I think it is perhaps of principal value to directors and to students. Above all, a great lesson for directors but I do know that it should prove fascinating reading for any person in the theatre. Personally, I was entrapped by it. I could not put it down. There are those who will say that Stanislavski's method is not practical for the commercial theatre. In a way, I agree with them, and for this reason it could not be applied to the poor play. It would be no use for a boulevard comedy, for popular plays. One can hardly imagine Stanislavski being bothered to produce romantic or comic melodramas, or even plays as good as The Barretts, Dear Brutus, The Royal Family, or any other plays in themselves essentially theatrical. Plays written by sophisticated commercial minds for sophisticated commercial audiences. There would be no sense in attempting to direct these plays in Stanislavski's way. I'm not sure we would agree with that now by the way, but anyway, that's John Gilgood. He knew his onions. Have to um, listen to what he thought. But for the classical play, the really serious play, and modern poetic dramas like Murder in the Cathedral and Maxwell Anderson's works, actors, I can tell you, welcome plays like these. The approach would be admirable. 
One can apply the Moscow art theory of living every moment of the part to Shakespeare, and it means something. But apply it to hay fever, and it becomes ridiculous. I find that little bit of um, John Gilgood's um, bit kind of fascinating because I, I, I've often thought of hay fever as being the most Chekhovian of plays. Um, so I don't, I don't see why you can't apply Stanislavski to Hay Fever, if you want to. Hay Fever by Noel Coward, by the way. Anyway, fine. Again, that's what John Gilgood thought. I don't say that the actor trained in this school might not carry a tray in a fast comedy better than any actor trained in the normal Anglo-Saxon manner, and I suppose that's something. On the other hand, while a Russian production of Hay Fever might be quite different from Noel Coward's, entirely removed from his intention or conception, it might still be able to amuse a Russian audience of huge hugely, and intrigue an English audience. The Habima theatre production of Twelfth Night, for example, was altogether different in spirit from Shakespeare's intention, yet it could hardly have failed to delight Shakespeare's as much as it did London audiences because the acting and the direction were so extraordinarily inventive. A school working with Stanislavski's theory ought to be of great value to the student of acting. Although, of course, it's a question whether anyone but Stanislavski would have the ability to direct it, without his genius to guide him. Craig has always demanded a school, but never achieved one. And there are all too few schools run by men of real discrimination in the theatre. In England now, there is the London Theatre School, created by Michel Saint-Denis, a nephew of Jacques Copeau, and leading actor and director of the famous Compagnie de Cannes which works on much the same theory as Stanislavski's. And at Dartington Hall is the newly organised Chekhov Theatre Studio. The company de Cannes, which created André Obi's Noah, is, alas, broken up. I don't see any reason why Stanislavski's system should apply only to Russia. All schemes of training rest on the fact that you must get people when they are young and are prepared to go through a training course. The only danger is that unless these studios are able, out of their own groups or with another commercial management, to develop a working group of players who can act plays before paying audiences, they are not apt to go far. This is the intention of Saint-Denis, and I believe he will achieve it. Or he doesn't really achieve it, though, not really. Agonisingly. Every young actor must wish, when he is very young, to be told the things that Stanislavski tells of in his book. And for the director, and the actor too, Stanislavski's ability to distinguish between a cheap effect on the audience and the real effect of the artist must be immensely valuable. Another value of a studio like Stanislavski's is that it may lead young people into designing, directing, and other branches of the theatre, even if they have no talent for acting. But a real talent for other service to the theatre, as very often happens. It does. In Russia... And on the continent, the theatre is taken seriously as an art. In Anglo-Saxon countries, it is, if you generalise, a business. The actor's looks, his sex appeal, didn't know that was a 1930s term, his personality count for far more in our theatre than in Stanislavski's. People fall into the acting profession for a dozen reasons besides real ability. There is not, at present the same opportunity to build up a serious repertory theatre. There is no theatre for the classics, and it's deeply needed for the good of the theatre itself, both for actors 
and for audiences, and without it, an actor has very little chance to play the great parts. An actor, in these days, almost has to make up his mind whether to be popular or to be a good actor, and often it's hard to gauge the difference between popularity and real talent. Alas, the modern commercial theatre is bound to be a bitter disappointment to those trained in Stanislavski's theories. But it is our theatre which is wrong, and not the training. I'm not sure that a great personality, a really great actor, would not be liable to disrupt Stanislavski's type of theatre. I should like to ask Stanislavski how we can reconcile the supreme art of the great players of the past with the bad companies and the bad plays they appeared in. These actors, Bernhard, Dusa, Salvini, even Henry Irving, had a curious unevenness and a passion for the limelight which conflicts strongly with Stanislavski's ideas. I have a feeling that one must have a classical impersonality to work well in Stanislavski's theatre. A schnabel can attain that magical quality. Playing Beethoven, he almost is Beethoven. But whether an actor can, I'm not sure. Are the Russian and continental theatres the only ones that produce great actors with true genius for direction also? The great ones I spoke of just now were all directors, and very good ones too. But this direction was focused around themselves. And they could not, or would not, have directed or acted in great productions of The Cherry Orchard or The Government Inspector, plays which were not written for a single star. I would give anything myself to know how to produce a play in our commercial theatre with a star part in it where every part is perfectly cast. I doubt if this has ever been done, except possibly in Stanislavski's own theatre. Meanwhile, in our theatre, actors and producers must labour to produce really fine plays, to build up repertory companies. There is no better training than working over and over again with the same actors, especially in a theatre of short rehearsal periods and long runs. If only Stanislavski could now take the time to travel, to see foreign productions, to lecture and criticise, to bring his own companies to Europe and America! Exclamation mark. Of course, um, Stanislavski dies, he's ill when... Um, when John Gilgood is writing that, and dies shortly afterwards, so that never happens. He had toured, although the Moscow Arts Theatre agonisingly never came to Britain. I don't think Gilgood ever saw him. Do you get that feeling? I get the feeling that Gilgood never actually saw the Moscow Arts Theatre. Um, shame. Anyway, um, I hope you enjoyed that little bonus edition, how Gilgood responded to the publication of An Actor Prepares... Uh, Gilgood was concerned with drama training, with the direction of theatre, with the drama school. Um, and I think in that you can sort of hear perhaps his own agony. So it's an interesting little piece. Great. OK, hope you're enjoying the podcast. Um, talk to you soon. Bye. <laughs>